All right, so we're back with part three of a Cold War focused series. Ian is back on to teach us all the stuff we didn't know. Ian, thanks for jumping back on, man. Anytime, man. Look forward to it. So we've been breaking this up by time periods. The Cold War, you've probably heard me ramble about this more than once now, but it's a little overwhelming for me because it's kind of like saying the history of the world for 50 years. So what we've tried to do here, and Ian's being a sport, but we're, we're breaking it out by windows and or periods of time. And we're really looking at about a two decade stretch for this part, for part three. We're going to start in the early 60s and wrap up with the early or with the late 70s. So that's right. In one hour, we'll try to hit two decades of Cold War, at least <laughs> at a high level. But uh, what do you think, Ian? Had a good timeline? Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we wrapped up last time with, uh, let's see, Cuban Missile Crisis kind of coming to a close, right? And kind of averting. I didn't realize you talked a little bit about how close the world was to nuclear war with nuclear uh, nuclear uh, torpedoes, right? Yeah. Anybody who doesn't know that story, go back and listen to at least the end of the last episode. That was kind of crazy. But take it away, man. <laughs> Cuban Missile Crisis averted. Where are we at now? Well, it's it's funny because. Um, where we're going to get to eventually in this story, this decade, is really there's going to continue to be West versus East tension. There's always that tension. That's what defines the Cold War, you know. But what is remarkable about this period from the kind of early mid-60s, especially on into the late 70s, is that you start seeing the communist world be at loggerheads against each other. And what you really see is, and what I, I is very important about this period, especially into the late 60s, is what we call the Sino-Soviet split. <clears throat> and the Sino-Soviet split is very simply a uh, ideological split between the People's Republic of China, which is now on the up and up at this time, fresh off the heels of victory in Korea, generally speaking on their terms, fresh off the heels of other insurgencies that they've been pushing for and successes in uh, establishing a communist China uh, versus the Soviet Union. You're gonna see an ideological split there that really has its origins back in the 50s after the, the, uh, the death of Stalin, but it's really gonna start getting bad with Khrushchev, and then especially with the, um, the successor to Khrushchev, um, the next um, chairman of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, Leonid Brezhnev. And Leonid Brezhnev is gonna be your next leader of the Soviet Union after Khrushchev. Frequently, he's the one that we don't hear as much about in the United States because He's kind of this guy who he he oversees what a lot of people call the era of stagnation in the Soviet Union when uh, things kind of level out um, and there there's a little more detente. And what we mean by detente, if you're not familiar, is this concept of kind of normalizing relations with people that would normally be your enemy and just kind of containing them, keeping in a place, but also continuing to have an economic and a diplomatic relationship with them, even if it is antagonizing or you know some sort of um fight between you guys when did that change happen from khrushchev to Brez brezhnev I, I know i'm butchering the names but was that that was that was the early 60s it's really it really comes to a head after um about about 1964 you have a party congress in the soviet union in 1964 and what a lot of this really is is a fallout amongst the what we call the politburo which are basically Imagine the Communist Party is a board of 13 to 15 guys. The head of that board is the leader of the Soviet Union. Well, the rest of the board around Khrushchev was getting very anxious 
and a lot of guys within the board and within the higher rankings of the party saw his backing down after the Cuban Missile Crisis as 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 weakness. Um, and that was actually seen in, in the same vein. It was also seen by uh, uh, by China. Mao saw this as a as a backing off and a sign of weakness after all this tough talk from Khrushchev. Um, and it really after 62, 63, it's going to peter off and eventually turn into um, a um, Communist Party conference where Khrushchev is is uh, pushed out and uh, Leonid Brezhnev comes in. Hey, I've got a and, hypothetical, I guess, there. Um, yeah. If they viewed the backing down, because we look at the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis as, in a sense, a big success because the alternative was potential nuclear war. If some viewed that as weakness and failure, what did they want? What did they want that to look like? What would have what would have success look like in their eyes? So hypothetical. I know I'm I'm asking you to. to... No, that's that's a good because when you can paint that easily, you've got a good idea of where the conflict is. And in I would say in this scenario, your a victory for the Soviet Union was having a strategic partner in Cuba with nuclear weapons capability within 90 miles of the continental United States. And still there and sitting And there. still there. Okay. And also ultimately after this, possibly having full control of Berlin. That's kind of a secondary thing to this whole process, but it's it's mostly victory for them at this time in the Cuban Missile Crisis and that immediate aftermath would have been maintaining their missiles there, okay. maybe giving up, um, getting NATO to give up their missiles in Turkey and maintain them in Cuba too would have been a, a real big victory for them, but that would have been best case scenario probably for them. And, you know, avoiding nuclear war, that was also a, a good a victory for them. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. But in this time after 64, you've got Leonid Brezhnev, but this tension continues between China and the Soviet Union. And this is going to, it's not something we often hear about in the West because a lot of the way that we paint the Cold War is this monolithic interpretation of the communist world of the East, but there's so much infighting in the communist world. And this split between kind of the hardliners in China and the more, I don't want to call them liberalizing forces, but the, the, the less authoritarian movements of the USSR after Stalinism is going to create a divide between your, your, your harder communists and your softer communists, we'll say, because where this split originates is really after Stalin. Mao, despite his kind of back and forth with Stalin for the brief period when Mao is in power and Stalin's still alive in the early 50s, um, Stalin was never a huge fan of Mao, but he recognized him as the you know irrefutable leader of the now People's Republic of China. And he had a, a certain bit of clout as a result. But what really changed this relationship between China and the USSR is in 1956, Khrushchev, now ascending to become the uh, chairman of the Communist Party and the leader of the Soviet Union, denounces Stalin in this speech to a Congress, a, a party Congress of the Soviet Union in 1956. And not only that, it's broadcast, it's translated and pushed out in all sorts of communist newspapers and in the Soviet Union. And this begins, at least in terms of, of when compared against Stalinism, this begins this thawing in Soviet society and a, a gradual allowing of, you know, to an extent, um, you know, a rebuffing of mistakes that the Soviet Union made and that the party had made. And this never happened prior to the era of Stalin. That Mao, sounds like borderline blasphemy. 
for some, right? To hear Stalin in those, okay. Yeah. And, it was and that it, severe. It's not, it's not like everyone, everyone in the Soviet Union, it's hard to really paint a picture of how they're thinking because this, the generation at this time are adults and older adults and young adults in the Soviet Union in the 50s has been through so much on so many different levels of political war, famine, all these things that there are a lot of people who had come to associate the peace after the chaos of the of the invasion of Russia as kind of attributed to Stalin. And Stalin made damn well sure that everybody knew it was him who got the credit for it. Um, he's an authoritarian. But there were a lot of people that really were not happy with this interpretation by Khrushchev. Mao is one of them. And there are many within the Warsaw Pact or what will become the Warsaw Pact that are not fans of this movement towards a and a slight opening up of, of, of public ridicule and things like that. And so this starts kind of a slow divide, but especially with China. And so what ends up happening is Khrushchev opens up a little bit more. There's still a lot of crackdowns. The KGB still exists, don't get me wrong. But compared to China, China is still a dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's where this kind of ideological split comes from is because early on in communism, you have the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, a dictatorship by the proletariat, the working class people. And that dictator is represented by one authoritarian leader. Early on, it's Lenin and Stalin, or shakes out to be Stalin in the PRC. It's Mao, and at this point, only Mao. And Mao sees this as weakening to the Soviet Union. And slowly, Mao kind of splits away from him. And by the mid-60s, they've actually uh, pulled away so much to the point that actually the Soviet Union starts to pull a lot of its, its um, support for communist China. It starts to remove a lot of its technical um, science and a lot of things that will eventually lead to China getting nukes in the late 60s, actually. Uh, the PRC detonates, does its first successful nuclear weapons test. And I think it's either 1968 or 69. And this is the result of engineers and help from the Soviet Union. But they had left long before this. So... What is that, when you say they were pulling away, what does that look like? Like, what does it mean to kind of slowly sever those ties? Or maybe not sever those ties, but yeah, move away. What does that look like? Pulling away for the Soviet Union uh, from China means um, backing insurgencies, backing um, pro-communist movements that China was not fond of backing or backing them in a different way. It also means pulling technical advisors from universities and scientific research and things in the PRC that the Soviet Union um, was helping them with, pulling weapons technology, the sharing of tech- technological plans and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's it, one infamous, infamous example would be, would be tank technology. Um, and this comes to play later on in open conflict between the PRC and the Soviet Union in the late 60s. I'll get to that. But um, there's a point at which this divide gets so bad that um, certain tensions that have always been there between the Soviet Union and earlier the Russian Empire and what is today China, um, border disputes um, on the east and west edges of China, uh, those start to become flashpoints and at one point even almost turn into an all-out nuclear conflict, a nuclear exchange between um, uh, the USSR and the PRC. Um, Now, prior to this, this split starts to manifest itself in places like Vietnam. The U.S. is getting involved. And we think of North Vietnam being just wholeheartedly supported by the communists, kind of at large. 
And while the entire communist world was pretty fond of Ho Chi Minh, the, the leader of um, Northern Vietnam, um, the USSR really took the lead in material support and technical support and diplomatic support of um, Northern Vietnam. And that's why you see a lot of, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, oh gosh, that word escapes me right now. But um, um, solidarity uh, with Northern Vietnam in the Warsaw Pact, the European communist states. China is a little quieter. China does support them. It gives them arms and weapons in some cases, but Vietnam starts to drift more towards the Soviet camp, whereas Cambodia down in the Southwest, they start to drift more towards China. And that's gonna set itself up also, strangely enough, as a proxy war later in the late 70s, um, mid to late 70s, where almost immediately after the US withdrawal in the 1970s, Cambodia is going to have an open border conflict with Vietnam the now newly re, uh, reunited Vietnam by the mid 70s. And just after that, China and Vietnam are going to have an open conflict along their northern border. Um, so you see this split in the world and these two camps really become an underlying factor in so much stuff that happens, especially in the communist world in Asia. And also later on, as I'll get to in, in Africa too. Interested in some of that. I, um, you're right. We always group them. I always group them together, right? It's it's especially with North Vietnam. As I know, we're going to hit a little bit on the Vietnam War um, as a little teaser for anybody. We're not going to get super deep in Vietnam, so we don't lose sight of the entire Cold War. But um, I just group them all together. I mean, I know they had different roles there, and, and there were different relationships. And China and Vietnam are far from best of friends throughout history, right? Before and after the conflict, um, but it's really easy. And I think not to get too far down this rabbit hole, but I think that's what we do with history, right? Over time, history simplifies because it, it's, you know, it's really hard to tell a very long detailed story of something that happened 500 years ago, hundred years ago. And, and we see that happen now. It's been 50 years and we still, I still simplify all of this East versus West. That's it. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, that's there, there's a certain need for that when you're approaching these things, like you've seen in these, in these podcasts we've had there's a lot of gray area and a lot of back and forth in all these different areas it'd be impossible to try and teach a bunch of second graders hell they don't even cover the cold war second graders high schoolers even this idea of like the non-monolithic communist but you know it's it simplifies things but it also there's a hope that in saying giving these little bits to someone that doesn't understand that like the idea of there possibly being a nuclear exchange between china and the soviet union i'm pumped to hear about that yeah Right, that might pique your interest and be and be like, really? Like how the how the hell does that happen? But so one question on um, and kick this down the road if if it fits better later in the conversation. But when it came to Chinese and Soviet support of North Vietnam, when I look at the Vietnam War from the U.S. perspective, I kind of have in my mind that it is less pro South Vietnam and more anti communism. That's more the reason for the U.S. involvement, right? Um, it's yeah. not that South Vietnam was such an ally that we had to be there. It was that communism was such an enemy. How does that relate to China and Soviet Union? Is well, it a similar it, concept? It's, it's, it's a similar concept to Korea, like we talked about in the last episode. You've got a government in South Vietnam that the U.S. not only admits, but is inculcated in the the deposing of its leader at one point because they know their government's not that great, but it's not communist. It's the thing. 
you can't pick your friends all the time, um, but you got to be able to support those people when the enemy or the alternative is X or communism, communism in the North. Um, but it plays out a lot like Korea. And unlike Korea, we kind of get sucked more and more down this hole after our allies, the French, lose there. And after we get sucked in with advisors in the late 50s, or I should say more advisors in the late 50s, we've had personnel on ground to at least see how the war is going since I think as early as 45, 46. In Vietnam. Um, yes. Um, they weren't advisors, though. They were they were really just attaches, guys that were there to kind of see how things were going and be observers a, a kind of presence. Yeah. Um, but it really heats up by the mid 50s, especially following 54, 55, Jin Bin Fu and all that stuff. Um, but it really Jin Bin Fu, that was when the French were kind of finally kicked out or kind of the catalyst. To... It's not the very end, but it's the last major defeat and a vast defeat for the French in then Indochina, Vietnam, um, where they just get routed um, and their airborne drop goes horribly wrong. And the then um, what were called the Viet Minh, which were the precursor to the, um, the uh, uh, Viet Cong in the South, um, they, they defeat them. And so that after that, we see, we also are starting to pitch our wagon or our horse to this idea of uh, domino theory more and more by the mid fifties. And that really draws us in. And by the mid sixties, by the time Kennedy is assassinated, we have somewhere around 12,000 advisors on ground in Vietnam. It's, it's a lot. Um, at its peak, I think we're, we have around 13, yeah, 12 or 13,000, um, maybe, uh, I'm sorry, by 64, by the time that, um, the Tonkin Gulf incident happens, which for anyone who's unfamiliar, it's essentially some North Vietnamese craft, um, running out and attacking two U.S. naval, uh, Navy ships in the Gulf of Tonkin in Northern Vietnam. This spurs, um, a, basically a push by then, uh, President Johnson, to send regular troops and divisions to Vietnam. And this really kicks off the deployment of not just advisors, but we're talking regular boots on ground here. The first units that go in um, are gonna be your first infantry division, uh, your first cab, um, and, I and there's some Marine units that go in as well. Um, in 1965, this, is, this starts, um, the real deployment of boots on ground in Vietnam for us starts in mid 65, um, but first ID, first cab, and some others that follow follow afterward. But that is all gonna kick off following Gulf, uh, Gulf of Tonkin. And at this time, the Sino-Soviet split thing is still starting to play into the support for Vietnam, but Cambodia hasn't kicked off yet, nor has the Vietnam border conflict with Vietnam. So the real conflict here with the Sino-Soviet split at this time is going to be, is going to be between China and the Soviet Union. And as things devolve in the late 60s, you're going to see um, really even North Korea kind of at odds with China at this point, because North Korea sees how China is handling. So China goes through two big things at this time, in the, early, in the late 50s, early 60s, into mid to late 60s. You've got the Great Leap Forward, which is this massive push of basically organized, almost slave-like labor to totally change and update and push for agricultural output in China. Uh, and increase industrial output in the cities. And this happens as a great leap forward, but they push so hard and pull so many people from the country into the cities to make this happen that they basically artificially cause a famine. And this kills many, many millions of people in China. And North Korea sees this and, he, and at this time is even like, man, 
what are you guys doing over there? Funnily, fun fact, there's actually, it's so bad in China at one point that the northern border of China um, with, or the northern border of North Korea with China, you actually have a lot of Chinese escaping the Great Leap Forward in China into North Korea. Because at this time, North Korea is relatively stable. They've got at least jobs and work for everybody and everyone's generally being fed. Another thing to remember at this time about Korea is that through the mid 60s and all the way up almost to the 80s, South Korea is not the South Korea we think of today. It's had a massive explosion in technical output and it, it's the big tech hub we think of it now, but it hasn't been that way forever. It's really only been that way about 30 years, 35 years. Into the 70s even, I've talked with friends who were deployed to Korea in the 1970s with the 101st Airborne. And when they were there, they were digging in amongst mud huts with farmers and stuff. These guys were on the same level as North Koreans we think of today. It's just that North Korea kind of peaked in the late 60s and never really got any better. And the South kind of kept going. Um, but even North Korea is going to split from China at this point and kind of be like, hey, what's, what's going on? And China's going to continue to um, have animosity because of the capitulation with um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and these tensions are really going to build by the late 60s. And this is when I'll get into the whole, the other thing you were wanting to know about. So is there another term or another phrase? Like you described it as the great leap forward, but nothing about that sounded great. It sounded pretty <laughs> bad. Um, no. You go into a little more detail there. like So the whole concept of the great leap forward was similar to other movements in communist uh, countries earlier that had also... Some of them had learned their lesson, others did not. Um, they, they basically forced, later on you see the same thing in Cambodia actually with Pol Pot, and that's where the whole killing fields and everything comes from. You had this forced movement of people from urban to rural or rural to urban to accomplish a particular economic goal that the country has. But in doing so, you put so much emphasis on this one side that you lose input on the other. So in this case, with the Great Leap Forward, the great leap was to try and get China out of being this peasant backward country that only produced rural goods. They wanted to create steel. They wanted to create textiles. They wanted to do these things in the cities, very similar to 1930s Russia. However, in doing so, all these people were neglected in the country. They start going to cities. There's no one to till the fields. Things, you know, gotcha. fields go fallow. Things go bad and everyone suffers as a result. And then after this, in the mid 60s, you're going to see again, as a result of more tensions with the Sino-Soviet split, to double down on this authoritarian um, image that Mao wants, this Stalinist idea that he thinks is the right way to go, whereas Khrushchev is going anti-Stalin. He starts what's called, um, uh, this is going to be the, uh, um, gosh, I just blanked on it again, uh, the uh, Cultural Revolution. And the uh, Cultural Revolution in the mid-60s is basically going to be uh, a forced killing off of the old guard. Anyone that's left that can question Mao. It's, it's very similar to the late 1930s and mid-30s of Stalinist Russia. Straight it's purges, be, right? Yep, it's going to be purges. It's going to be it's going to be abandoning of traditional Chinese um, imagery and uh, practices, a forced modernization and an abandoning of the old ways that are still tied with the people of the land of the civil wars in China of the 1920s and 30s and a forced push towards Mao, city, and industrialism, it's also not going to go great. But it does consolidate Mao's power. To a great extent, it consolidates his power. So much so that when tensions get out of hand in the late 60s, China and the USSR 
are going to almost get to war with each other. And that's where I was going to get into what I was telling you earlier about. So I mentioned ready for this. So as far back as the 1860s, the uh, Imperial Russia had taken over two big portions of water basically on the eastern and western edges of what's today China. Um, and those portions kind of come down and around China today. So on the east, they're actually still held by, a lot of it's still held by Russia. The west, not so much. Those got broken into a lot of um, post-Soviet uh, Stan countries, if you will. Um, Uzbekistan, you know, Turkmenistan, et cetera. Um, et cetera. But these two borders have continually been a back and forth. When the Japanese invade and take over Manchuria during World War II, they also conflict openly with the Soviets over these borders. And this, this border has been fought over for years and years and years, and even since imperialist Russia. But this, the Russian imperial idea is tied to the Soviet Union as a whole, because the Russians are, of course, the largest, the largest ethnic group in the Soviet Union. And the Chinese historically see them as just the inheritors of this. They say, why do you have these lands? These are Chinese lands. These aren't ethnically yours. They aren't culturally yours. But the Soviet Union holds them. In one place in particular, in 1969, um, in, on the east, you're going to have uh, Zhenbao Island or Demansky Island. Um, and essentially, it's this little island. It's about two kilometers long. Um, it's in the middle of this river that demarks the border between China in the west and Russia in the east. Remember, this is Russia goes over China and then down on the eastern coast, if you're looking at it on the map. Yeah, um, I'm look it up now. So the Soviets are on the eastern side. Uh, China is on the west. And they've been having tit for tats over this for a while. But basically now the consensus is China started it. And what happens is early on in February of 1969, the Chinese attack a uh, column of Soviet border guards who are trying to patrol this island. And they kill some guys. And this eventually escalates into back and forth raids against each other. We're talking full on, full on squad battalion. I think it's almost at a battalion level at some point. And it's, these are large groups of Chinese and Soviets fighting. And they start out as border guards, but they later become regular artillery, regular motorized infantry. Even tanks are sent out there. And hey, Ian, can you step a little closer to your microphone? It's starting to get a little quiet. Oh, sorry, one sec. Uh, I could hear all of that. It's just getting a little quieter. While you're doing that, I just want to say that um, I feel silly saying this, but now looking at the map and looking around, you know, where is Russia and China? Um, where are they sharing borders? It really makes you realize how massive Russia is. Holy cow. I mean, yeah. it loops all the way around. They're on the and east you think of China, China, all across the north and on the like. And you think of China as big? Man, they got a lot of people, but Russia's huge. I mean, the Soviet Union is huge. Russia today is still freaking huge. Yeah. But the Soviet Union was mass. Um, but this tension essentially over this island, Shenbao Island, escalates and eventually it results in, I want to say there's 60 plus Soviets that are killed. And well over, estimates range from 1,000 to, gosh, over 1,000 Chinese uh, that have either been uh, killed or wounded. But it gets so tense that at one point, the Soviet Union is actually considering a strategic nuclear strike. And Mao is weighing his options with this as well. Late, so, late 60s? You said this is late 60s? It begins in February. It reaches, it gets its most heated in about April, May of 1969 and peters out by September. But there's border clashes continually from this period, from March, really, all the way into about September. 
And at one point in the middle of this, the Soviet Union is going to the United States and saying, hey, if we nuke China, would you guys stay out of this for us? And even we're like, oh man, what? And then so we have to start, our, our people have to start getting involved. The Nixon administration at this point has to start getting involved, talking to our counterparts, trying to talk to the Chinese and, and Soviets on both sides and calming them the hell down because they're, they are actually talking of strategic strikes with, with nuclear weapons at this point um, and an exchange. But it gets it gets that bad that they actually they actually ask the U.S. to stay neutral um, in this incident, and we actually use that to our advantage. Though we step back and say we don't want anything to do with this. You guys tear yourselves apart. You're just making our cause look better. Pretty, this yeah. um, this is yeah. a a big you know another conversation for another day. We can spend a long long time talking about. But the fact that that hasn't happened since atomic weapons came about the fact that there's been two uses of atomic weapons nuclear weapons in history is insane like it to me when i really think about it little things like this a border dispute that gets a little heated and bam nukes are on the table like it's it kind of defies humanity like we're not better than that i don't really understand how <laughs> somehow we've made it to this point and that hasn't happened right but Anyways, that's a, a deep rabbit hole. We'll go down another time. It's even wilder when you consider the, the animosity between Pakistan and India. They're both nuclear armed as well. Um, and so is Israel at one point. But um, I digress. So this conflict gets so heated. There are lives lost on both sides. The Chinese actually capture a relatively new um, Russian um, T-62 tank. And this plays into this whole thing about how they have been sharing technology with them. That's a huge trophy. And fighting continues for about three or four days because this tank gets knocked out. The Chinese try to claim it. It falls into the river because it's thawing season. So the river was ice at one point. It thaws, the tank falls into the river. And the Chinese are having to pull this tank out of the river. But the Russians are artillery are, are hitting them with artillery every day to try and destroy the tanks so that they can't recover it. Um, and this escalates the fighting over this one tank in this uh, conflict. But they eventually recover the tank goes to a museum, but they use that to, to engineer their own copy, essentially, of the T-62 uh, tank, which they didn't have because there was no technology sharing at this point. But everything calms down because there's uh, eventually, there's a line established between um, the, the representatives from the PRC, uh, the People's Republic of China and the USSR, and they speak, they first send a message to each other when the communist world is all together at the funeral of Ho Chi Minh who dies in 1969. This is actually an opportunity to finally get China and the Soviet Union in the same room. And they're, they're on such a course toward each other, they actually stop and meet in an airport um, and talk things through, because that's the first time they could get each other to be in the same room. Um, but from this point on, the US sees that the split between China and, and Russia is going to play continually through everything we do. And we're gonna try and play them off each other everywhere we can. And that includes, Another place I was going to mention, which is Africa. Africa, in especially getting into the early 70s and in the late 70s, um, is increasingly becoming a proxy warfare ground for the Cold War. It's being backed by the Soviet Union in some places, by the US in other places, China in other places, and other war pack nations that generally fall under either China or the Soviet Union in terms of alliances. Um, and I'm not going to go into all the stuff with Rhodesia and South Africa and everything, they are involved, but 
I'm really going to touch that stuff right now because it's a whole other thing to go into, um, into a rabbit hole with. But just know that all these countries that see breakups, the early 60s is going to be the era of shaking off colonialism. All of these countries that were formerly held by Portugal, Belgium, uh, Britain, France are going to rebel or start independence movements. And China or Russia or the US in some cases are going to latch onto those independence movements, make sure they win, and then continue to back them when civil war almost inevitably always breaks out after independence is gained. You've got Algeria in the late 50s and early 60s with France. France goes immediately from fighting in Indochina, which they lose, and they lose Vietnam, which then breaks into a civil war, North and South. Soviets supporting the North, Americans supporting the South. Algeria, Northern African country, was formerly a colony of France. It's held out and becomes a dirty, dirty guerrilla war that the French are fighting at the same time they're cleaning up things or they're trying to finish up in Indochina. That blows up in their faces. It turns into multiple terrorist attacks, both on French soil and in Algeria. <laughs> and it's going to eventually gain its independence in the early 60s and turn into continued uh, civil war there for a little while because you're going to have, again, communist and democratic or social democratic kind of sides fighting against each other. And almost every single time one of these countries gains its independence or fights this long slog against, against an, imperial, an imperial power, they're going to win their independence, immediately split up, and those camps are almost always going to be backed by the Chinese and, and or Russians or the Americans. And then it just continues to slog out because they have the economic and military power behind these two giants that are helping them out. Well, it's smart, right? I mean, why not? If you're one of these countries, you know you've got people that are, you know, again, this, this zero-sum game around the world. They're, they're not stupid. They're watching it play out everywhere else. Um, every country that's splitting is going to know one of those two is going to be interested in backing us to a degree. Is why the U.S. was so heavily, I mean, what was it, half a million or more in Vietnam at its peak? Did that lead us to not be as heavily involved in some of these other conflicts, as in we were maybe just a little too tied up there? Or were there other reasons? So that's the thing with these, is that it, at a certain point, what's different about Africa from, say, Korea, is that Africa almost always, you're not just jostling for support so that there's not another domino. You're also jostling for a potential or potential economic advantage from this country. Diamonds, raw materials, steel, fuel. In a lot of cases, it's oil, especially in Angola. That's going to be a big, a big thing because the Americans don't want the Soviets to get access to oil in Angola, nor do they want them to have can, to have an ally in Africa where they can then set up a port that gives them long-range access to submarine refueling, you know, their ships refueling, etc. Um, it's it becomes more also equally about resources as it does about losing another country to communism or capitalism in this case, less where Korea earlier on was just we don't want to lose influence in this region. Here it's losing influence and resources and a potential military advantage over the other in the grand scheme of things. Was there um, was there much trade? So like if one of these countries you mentioned rich in oil or steel or whatever it might be, if they if they um went communist, say, did that mean that the U.S. wouldn't be trading with them, or was it just, you know, less preferred trade deals? It depends on what the resources were. There are some cases where a communist, um, you know, 
group may take over and later on we continue to support whatever faction didn't win and kind of keep a low boiling civil war and in many ways the cold war and the legacy of it is why we continue to have such a screwed up situation in a lot of countries in africa a lot of militia a lot of things that started out with the they had the financial and military support through the us and ussr to enable these conflicts to continue going on for 30 or 40 years where what's really fueling them on the ground in those places are ethnic hatred and ideological hatred and all these factors of political hatred that are hyper local that we don't quite honestly give a shit about we just don't want to lose influence and if we can gain an advantage over the other guy but this the long-term legacy of us being involved in africa and being involved in all of these post-colonial wars is that a lot of these places continue to be destabilized today um and that's gonna make things very difficult for africa um especially in the post um, cold war period right after uh, the soviet union falls um but all almost all these places they gain their independence they break up one side takes one side one takes the other you've got angola they get their independence from uh, actually the portuguese um, in the early 70s, they immediately split into two different factions, and then one splits into another faction, which China takes on. Believe it or not, China and the U.S. and Angola are supporting the same side, because China just wants to support whoever the Soviets aren't supporting. Um, and Angola is going to continually, through the 70s and 80s, um, be a place that the Soviet Union uh, sends advisors. The Cubans, at this point also, who we also rarely think of as being uh, in a military with... Um, power they can project. Cuba is going to be very active in, in Africa, especially Southern Africa. Cuba sends as many as, gosh, in, um, in Southwest Africa, I think they end up sending as many as like, it was over 15,000 troops. The Cubans have a lot of advisors on the ground in, in Africa. And in a lot of cases, it's going to be the Soviets and the Cubans. And later on in the 70s and 80s, you're going to see the East Germans involved in Angola and Southwest Africa. You're going to see other communist nations getting involved. Sometimes they even have exchanges where they might bring some Angolan soldiers to their country, train them in their militaries, equip them, and then send them back um, so they don't have to send as many advisors. But Africa is going to continue to churn up um, conflict and give um, and continue to fuel proxies between the East and the West. And um, one of the last of them, at least in the period that we'll cover today, um, is the Ogaden War. And the Ogaden War is basically um, Ethiopia and Somalia. They've been at loggerheads for a long time. They continue to be. Um, but basically separatists are funded um, in Ethiopia by the Soviet Union. Um, Cuban troops and uh, Soviets land there and buys them. They win. The U.S. doesn't pick a side in this conflict. And this ends in just about 1979. And at this exact same time, you actually have things heating up in Afghanistan. And because the U.S. and the uh, Carter administration, <coughs> sorry, oh. because <coughs> you want to hey, ca catch your breath. I got a question um, that I'll, I'll try to frame here. The U.S. doesn't pick a side in this conflict, which goes against what I know in the Cold War, because in the Cold War, there's always a side and it's whatever side the Soviets are not on. So what is that saying about the conflict that the U.S. isn't? picking a side per se is there what's the reason for that well this time it's it's primarily because um carter has his hands full um in 1979 he has his hands full with uh dealing with the repercussions of the iranian revolution um also there's an oil crisis which is gripping the united states and an economic crisis um 
that by 1978-79, the U.S. Um, is seeing, imagine what just happened recently down in uh, the southern U.S. when that pipeline got uh, attacked, had that cyber attack that cut off fuel for a bunch of people. Imagine that, but it lasts months, and there's no fuel, sorry, we're closed signs outside of all of your gas stations. Also keep in mind, in the late 70s, your average car is getting 8 to 12 miles per gallon, so your gas isn't even going as far as it would. But he's got a lot going on domestically. He's got a lot going on in the foreign sphere. And because of that, I think he was looking to try and um, temper frustrations and just not get involved and fill his plate with anything more than he had to at the time. Um, and because they, it's not that the U.S. isn't involved. Diplomatically, they're on the side of, uh, uh, they're, they're, they have their side. But they don't act decisively like they do in Angola. Southwest Africa, Mozambique, um, and they don't send funds and allow these people to fight that they would normally against the USSR. And because of that, the Soviets make the judgment that <coughs> that administration is going to be weaker coming soon on foreign policy stuff and backing um, pro-Western or, or rather anti-Soviet rebels. And as a result, they're kind of emboldened at this point, the USSR is emboldened um, to take matters into their own hands in Afghanistan at this time, in 1979. And the end of 1979 is going to see the Soviets um, invade, uh, or rather drop troops in uh, Afghanistan. And essentially, it's going to see them start the Soviet-Afghan war. They're going to overthrow the standing president of Afghanistan, who has overstayed his welcome, is not doing great inroads for the uh, socialist government of, of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, which is the socialist republic essentially that takes over, uh, the government that takes over Afghanistan in the early 70s and has been propped up by the Soviets up to this point. But there's been back-to-back -back government changeovers and leadership changes. Um, and the Soviet Union up to this point has been playing a material hand and maybe a, um, uh, a political hand in Afghanistan's government. But until 1979, they don't get boots on the ground, at least not in a large capacity. Just before Christmas 1979, that all changes. They come into Afghanistan, they overthrow uh, Nazibullah, who is the president. Um, he's killed, replaced, and essentially they stay on ground to try and stabilize things. And this essentially sucks in the USSR for the long haul that's going to be the Soviet-Afghan war or the Soviet Union's Vietnam, as a lot of people like to refer to it. Is that well? A couple things you you can take these as you as you'd like, but I'll start with with the situation in Afghanistan. You mentioned that you know there's a big political side to that. Um, was there more? Like what what drew the Soviets in and to stay? Or maybe that's getting ahead of ourselves. But then the other one, kind of two separate questions here. So take them as you see fit. This concept of bouncing around the world and we support South Vietnam and they support North Vietnam. And then just one after the other, it's exhausting. I mean, it is exhausting <laughs> just trying to keep up with it. The thought of actively maintaining those relationships and sending supplies and aid or just advisors, or maybe it's, I mean, trying to keep track of it. Is that, was that a strategy or was it kind of happening to the two sides and we almost lost, um, lost control, if you will? It seems like it spins out of control. Everything is a proxy fight in some way. I think it began as a controlled way. We just wanted to limit 
the spread of communism. We saw this ideological threat, which, as we mentioned in the earlier episode, was spelled out in no uncertain terms um, by NSC 68 that this was an existential threat to the United States. If we don't curb the spread of communism, this could result in the end of the world and of the United States and the world as we know it. Um, and it's painted that way in 1950. <laughs> NSC 68 is going to paint that all the way through the 80s and 90s. And after a certain point, I think it becomes latched onto by the political parties and by <coughs> those in government. And because of that, we just keep playing into it. We, we just keep saying, oh, communists, got to make sure that doesn't happen. Oh, communists over here, got to make sure that's, uh, we strangle that one in the cradle. Like it's, it's, it continually plays into this. I think the, it just snowballs and we don't know when and where to stop because we're constantly fearful. It, it becomes a policy at a certain point and there's money in it. There is influence in it. And for a lot of people, especially those making uh, the decisions in government, it becomes something that they can latch onto and something that they can keep their career by doing, um, by continuing to support these things, um, they can keep their career. They can also bring money and influence back to the United States. Um, and eventually, different administrations are going to approach the Soviets and foreign policy different. But some people are going to try and make nice with them. Other people are going to just try and keep them at arm's length, but not piss them off. Other people like Reagan, you'll see later on, are just going to try and spend them to death, which we kind of eventually do. Um, and different people do those similar takes on it throughout the Cold War uh, in the U.S. But I think it just snowballs. And at a certain point, people don't know what else to do. They're not just going to let it happen. Um, and everything becomes a proxy for something else. If we allow Angola to fall, shoot, then the Soviets can have extra oil there. And that will give them a leg up on yada yada and, you know, so-and-so and this and that and the other thing. Like any politician Everything is always painted out in the most dire terms, and we need to make an effort now, right now, to stop this thing, because if this thing happens, it can lead to that thing, and that thing can lead to this. You know, it's always a lot of positioning of, if this doesn't happen, then that could. And I think because of that, all that's different about the Cold War is that we have one thing we ultimately know we don't want those dominoes to lead to, and that's communism. Now it's a lot more complex. There's so many different things nowadays that one thing can lead to that can be bad or detrimental to the United States or our interests. But back then, it was so much easier to just say, that thing, if that thing happens, it can eventually lead to communism. And that colored everything for 45 plus years. It still does in some places. That's why we're sending, it's why we're sending supplies and money to a place called Angola, where most people couldn't even find it on a map, right? It's crazy. It, it sounds like a game of whack-a-mole that never ends which it kind of makes me think of, you know, to, to stay as far away from politics as we can here. It, it sounds a little bit like the global war on terror. Like the enemy, there's always going to be an enemy, right? Like we're never going to get rid of the enemy. There's always going to be something we can do. Um, or at least I don't know what the end state is there, but it, a lot of what you just described for the reasoning to continue the cold, not to continue the cold war, but, some of the policies in the Cold War, I feel like you could swap that out for uh, some GWAT stuff and it's not that far off. Maybe that's well, just politics. Maybe that's just how international relations work, right? Well, when you think about it, there was only about 10 years between the two and uh, those 10 years were kind of lean for the military and some people weren't making money. But 
<laughs> could go that's that weird when you say there's only 10 years between the cold war and the global war on terror that is weird to hear because i'm yeah. i'm still i mean we'll hit that another episode when we get into some of the <laughs> 80s and 90s but yeah to me those are such different periods of time but you're right jeez Benny, like i said i'll i'll go into more detail about afghanistan later on i can talk i can talk all day as i'm sure you can as well i can talk all day about afghanistan I did not deploy to Afghanistan. That was not my fear. But I sure as hell have read up on it. And I've always been very fascinated by the Soviet involvement there um, and how it's led to what we have today. But um, just know that that'll be a key part of the next episode. But another thing that's going on at the same time is it's really easy to lose sight of. Again, all, all I want your viewers and your listeners to come away with on this is that Vietnam is not the only show in town during the Cold War. It's the only show, well, it's, it's not even the only show for us. It's the big show for us at this time. But so is Korea. So were all these other places. There are, at any given time throughout the Cold War, so many different things happening all over the place. And even, I just mentioned Korea, the big war in Korea. But there's a second time in Korea where things really kick off. As a result of Vietnam, North Korea, Kim Il-sung, the leader of North Korea at this time, the founder of North Korea, takes the opportunity to basically go, hey, the Americans are drawing down troops on the Korean Peninsula. They're busy in Vietnam. Now is the time that we can strike. So for about 66, yeah, I know, it gets better. From about 66 to 1970, the beginning is late 69, is when it really tails off. But there starts what some guys who were there during the time call the Second Korean War. It's really fascinating. But basically, during this period from about the mid-60s to 1969, the North Korean government starts a campaign, a renewed campaign of cross-border violations, tunnels, um, assaults, small teams being inserted into South Korea in various ways and attacking U.S. troops, uh, rock troops. You know, they, they, this is when they start building a lot of those infamous tunnels that we know of, and we start discovering those in the mid-70s, early 70s. Um, but they start digging a lot of them in, the, in this period. Um, they insert 130 guys on the coast. Um, uh, North Korean Marines at one point just to, um, to start trying to build a guerrilla um, a guerrilla army in the mountains and they encounter um, a whole bunch of Korean civilians who actually put them up and help them out and they encounter rock guys and end up killing a lot of uh, Korean army guys at this period they actually kill a couple of Americans in the process they, they capture about 107 of the 130 odd North Korean Marines that are there um, but during this time you've also got the capture of USS excuse me, USS Pueblo, US, uh, US ship captured, um, the crew are all captured in North Korea. Eventually, um, the <laughs> Johnson administration negotiates for their release at the same time, though, and it's kind of a good judgment on the part of Kim Il-sung in North Korea. The US is very distracted by Vietnam because what else is happening in right between 1968 and 69? The Tet Offensive. This has... Everything on Johnson's plate right now has so many other things going on, and he has this little thing in Korea going on where Americans are being killed regularly. And by the end of it, I think we end up losing about 75 Americans over the course of two or three years through cross-border clashes of literally it will be a three-quarter ton truck with seven or eight guys from the 7th Infantry Division or the 2nd Infantry Division doing their regular border patrols. And they get caught up in a truck, and the North Koreans pop out of the, of the bush mow them all down and kill two or three Americans and the other four get away. And it's, it, this happens regularly every week, every other week in Korea and the South from about 1960, late 67, 68 to about mid 1969. And 
it, it even culminates that the biggest one is, that is best pulled from this period is uh, the Blue House incident. And the Blue House essentially was the South Korean equivalent of the White House. It's where the president lives, uh, the big seat of government. And um, a team of, I believe it was eight, it was less than 10, but eight North Koreans essentially smug or smuggled across the border in uh, rock uniforms and in, in uh, South Korean military uniforms. They get all the way up to the gates of the Blue House when they're um, when they're stopped by the guards and they find out who they are and a gunfight opens up and end up killing a whole bunch of Republic of Korea army personnel. Um, I think all but one of the North Koreans are killed and four Americans are killed in the firefight. So this they get really close to damn near walking up to the front gate of the essentially the South Korean White House and killing the South Korean president. Um, and this is in 1968. But it's it's the, the peak of this this second Korean War in the late 60s, which often gets very much forgotten about. And it, it, it was it was an advantageous time for the North to do this because they're distracted by Vietnam. All the good leadership, NCO's officers that would otherwise be on the Korean Peninsula have gone to Vietnam. Everyone who's left are untrained 13-month um, recruits with the, um, the Army of the United States. And for those listening, if you didn't know, until we ended the draft, there used to be what was called... The RA, the regular army, which are your guys who contract and they're going to be career soldiers, or at least they're going to stay in longer than two years. Then you have the Army of the United States, the AUSA. The AUSA was essentially, those are all your guys, your uncle, your grandfather, whoever, who's drafted in Vietnam. They have a two-year uh, contract after being drafted. Those guys have their own identifier on their paperwork that puts them as Army of the United States, not regular army. They were active duty during those two years. But they're part of what we call the Army of the United States. And those guys are by and large going to be the people fighting in Vietnam on their, they're getting conscripted and they go to Vietnam for a year and a half, come back and get out. That's your Army of the United States, your conscript army. <clears throat> your guys who are contracted to just be in two years. If they were to stay in longer, eventually stay active, they would transfer to the regular army. Hmm. But this is not to be confused with the Army Reserve and the National Guard, which also exists at this time. The AUSA, the Army of the United States are conscript specifically. And the vast majority of the troops on the Korean Peninsula at this time are that. In addition to that, all the good equipment and everything is going to Vietnam. The tanks are older and outdated on, on the Korean Peninsula. Most of them don't have M16s at this point. They will get M16s later on until the early 70s. Same thing, fun fact about the National Guard. The National Guard um, in most states never even got the M14. They went from having Durant's to the M16 in 1970-71. So um, a lot of them don't, uh, don't end up getting the M14. Uh, but uh, no, so Korea is another is another uh, hot point this time that often gets glossed over because Vietnam obviously takes up a lot of the air in the room, and as it should, it was a very large it was a it was a death pit for Americans. Uh, but it's just important to remember that at any given time, the world is not a vacuum. The Cold War world is certainly not a vacuum, and everything that's happening this time is connected with Cold War tensions. Every single thing in, in border policy. So as we're wrapping up the 60s and 70s, let's talk trajectory of, we'll go three countries because we kind of kind of spent more time on China today than we have in the past, which is awesome. Um, throughout this window from the 60s and 70s, how does it look for the US, for the Soviet Union, for China? Who's on the right track? Who is on the wrong track? What do you think? Well, let's go, let's go by 1979. So by the end of this period that we're talking about, 1979, Carter administration is not looking so hot. 
uh, we are just about to see the Soviets uh, invade a uh, friendly nation in Afghanistan and overthrow its leadership. We just saw them win in Ethiopia. Um, we also are about to boycott the 1980 Olympics because of the invasion of Afghanistan. So we're trying to keep our ducks in a row and, and not support the USSR too much. But up until this point, we'd actually been on a lot better diplomatic terms with the Soviet Union, and we were doing okay. But economically, by 1979, the U.S. is not looking so hot. Um, foreign policy-wise, the only good thing that really kind of comes out of this era is, is the um, uh, the uh, Camp David Accords, which is um, when um, the President of the United States organizes the meeting of leadership of Arab nations and Israeli nations over the first time an Arab nation um, acknowledges the um, diplomatic existence of Israel. Um, and this is in the wake of through the late 60s and 70s. I meant to get to this, but um, just know that during this time also that we covered today, you have the Arab-Israeli wars. Um, you have two of them. You have the 1967 war and the Yom Kippur war in uh, 1973. Um, and Israel and Egypt, by way of their benefactors, Israel supported by the U.S. at this time. The Arab countries are by and large supported by the Soviet Union and equipped by them too. They fight multiple times and they try to smooth things out by the late 70s. But the U.S. is not in a great space economically. Militarily, we're also on the heels of having losses in Vietnam. <laughs> Vietnam falls, or Saigon falls in 1979. That's that famous image of all the Vietnamese people crawling up that last Huey, flying off the embassy. We are distraught. Our economy is not doing good. There's an oil shortage. The, um, the administration is not very popular. And the U.S., by and large, is just done. We're, we are... We've lost in Vietnam, and it's the first time that this has happened to us. Our psyche is bruised. We have veterans coming home feeling like trash. We have people who, who just, it, Vietnam broke us, and it broke our idea of the military, our support of the military, and what we traditionally saw ourselves as in the military. We also end the draft, which means our military now going into 1979 has to be entirely voluntary, but still maintain a level that at any given time can fight the Soviets in a near-peer conflict. That's another thing to be thinking about this whole time. Our, that is a big, big thing. We disband the Army of the United States, those conscripts, <laughs> and we go entirely to the, to the military we go today, which is still huge, by the way. The U.S. Army, through the rest of this period, the Cold War is still going to be massive, uh, bigger than it is today. Um, but it's all going to be a lot of reserve, a lot of guard, and a lot of active duty on duty in um, uh, on occupation places in Germany, Korea, things like that. <laughs> but U.S. Ain't in a great place, and they're trying to figure themselves out militarily, politically. Okay. China is on the is doing better. Um, it's asserting its dominance in the region. It's in the middle of a conflict in 1979 with, of all places, Vietnam. It's fighting a border war with them at this time because um, Vietnam is in the USSR camp. China is uh, back in Cambodia. Cambodia at this time, since the fall of Saigon, essentially to this point in 1979, Cambodia has also become a communist country. Um, the uh, it's become uh, Kampuchea, which is the term they use for it, which is communist Cambodia, uh, run by a communist party or a communist socialist agrarian kind of party, Maoist style party called uh, the Khmer Rouge, and that's going to be your leader Pol Pot, who a lot of people might know of the Killing Fields, etc. Essentially, it's a greatly greatly forward, like we talked about earlier with China, but it's in the countryside of Cambodia, and it's in reverse this time. They force people from the cities to the country, and it kills a lot of people in the process, if you're seeing a pattern here. Um, but there's a border conflict with China. China is growing in its, its dominance in its region in Asia. <clears throat> it's getting more backing. 
I never even got to the invasion of Czechoslovakia. I meant to get to that. But um, the even the European communist allies are starting to split because of a Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, the Warsaw Pact, which is a union of communist um, bloc countries, a military bloc, think NATO, but for communist countries, mm-hmm. um, they several countries uh, are not happy with the USSR and actually fall into the China camp. Uh, the biggest one being Albania. Albania is the one and only country to leave the Warsaw Pact in 1968. And it comes clearly under the influence and support of China. You also have Romania, who is not a fan of the USSR's policies and its invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, but China is looking um, looking very much uh, powerful. Also, Mao has died by 1979. Mao dies in 1976. Um, and you have Zhou Enlai, um, who takes over for him. And this guy is going to be a total shift. He's going to get away from what Mao makes himself think of as this Stalinist, this authoritarian. The leader of China after after Mao is going to continue to be an authoritarian, but they're going to open themselves up to dialogue with the West, with the U.S., starting to do economic relations, not military, anything that close. They're still going to be communist, but <clears throat> they're going to become this weird hybrid that we know today, where even though we are adversaries with China today, this relationship between the U.S. and China you know, with manufacturing and economics and stuff, despite us having conflicting ideologies, this is all really going to start after Mao dies in 76. But 79, China is in a very good position. Um, Then you have the Soviet Union. Soviet Union is kind of in the middle of stagnation right now. Um, By 79, they're on the verge of invading Afghanistan. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev is still the leader of the Communist Party, and he will continue to be for a few more years. He's aging. He's not in great health. Um, and the Soviet economy and Soviet society as a whole is kind of stabilizing, but they're staying very flat. They're producing stuff. They're, they have an economy, but they're, they're faltering here and there. They have a harvest not do so well one year. And this is going to get worse and worse through the 80s, actually. Um, and the Soviet Union is still militarily a huge threat, still a problem. But I would say that they're very much um, on the decline from their peak of power, I would say in probably the mid sixties, mid to late sixties. Really? Okay. Um, and they had, for the most part, normalized relationship, uh, normalized relations with the U.S. But Afghanistan is really going to change that, and especially the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. That's going to totally change the dynamic of the Soviet-U.S. Um, relationship, um, which was kind of fostered by Nixon in the early sixties and uh, late sixties and early seventies, which kind of thawed things with us, China, and the USSR at that time. So U.S. not doing so hot. China's doing pretty good. Russia, kind of on the edge, but it's definitely still um, our, our biggest threat. Dude, I am excited to uh, – so for anybody that's listened to part one, two, and now three, I think we've got a part four coming with uh, a big focus on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan or the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, I guess I'll say. Um, all the way up through the end of the Cold War. So we're going to try to kind of wrap everything up together here. Um, but yeah, that'll be part four coming up next. But again, today, 60s and 70s, Ian, that was a lot to ask of you. Covered two decades in an hour, but I think you did an awesome job, man. Thanks so much for uh, diving into all that. Thanks, man. Anytime. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah, we'll do it soon. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. 
We'll see you next time.